Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is generously sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. We'd also like to welcome our newest sponsor, the Lumina Foundation. Thank you very much for your support. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And please, please rate us on iTunes. Yes, please rate us on iTunes. And if you have a fun story to tell, we'd love to hear that too. Now let's get to the show. All right, here we are, another episode of Let's Hear It. Welcome back in, and um, we're in for a treat today and somewhat of a radical departure for Let's Hear It. We have one topic, but two guests. It's uh, hugely radical. Hugely radical. It's a radical version of Let's Hear It. Can uh, you smell the radicalism? It's, I, it's, it's in the air. I can. We will be discussing radicalism, actually, when we do our <laughs> debrief. So, Eric, set this up for us, because this, this is well worth a listen. Okay, I interviewed Kristen Mack who is Senior Communications Officer at the MacArthur Foundation. And one of the things that she's responsible for is 100 to Change, which is the MacArthur Foundation's prize, its competition. And we'll talk a lot about what 100 and Change is, but she's the communications person in, in charge of that. And I also interviewed Jason Morgan, who is the Managing Principal and CEO of The Common Pool, which is a company, actually, that works on prizes like this. And so they partnered with the MacArthur Foundation to help them with 100 and Change. And they do other things. So I started by speaking with Jason to kind of set up what are competitions and what kind of work are they doing and how are they working with MacArthur. And then I talked to Kristen afterwards about how the MacArthur Foundation thinks about this work and how they use communications on projects like this. I mean, this is kind of like a great big huge thing. And uh, it, it was really exciting to talk about these about this and to think about our conversations in terms of um, what's the strategy on communications, but also a little bit of the substance of what we were talking about. Well, and this is very real time because 100 and change, the application window is open right now. That's right. right? So um, we'll hit these dates later, but by July 16th, 2019, that's the first um, round for getting uh, registered for to be part of this program. So if you only listen this far, Jump to 100andchange.org and get registered if you've got a $100 million idea. But um, let's listen to this. This is, again, well worth listening to. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest this time is Jason Morgan. Jason is the managing principal and CEO of The Common Pool. And The Common Pool, if I understand this properly, Jason... You're an organization that run competitions. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, but I do have a few questions for you right off the bat. Then we'll talk about the common pool. One, do you have kids? I have two kids. When when you want to get something done in the house, do you run a competition? <laughs> we kind of do, actually. It's funny, you know, like <laughs> my kids know what I do. It's funny too, because like, listen, if I go to like to a cocktail party and someone asks me what I do for a living. I don't say like, hey, I design prizes. You know, I sound like a carnival barker if I do that. But my kids know what I do. And so they're always talking about it. And anytime there's like a grand challenge in the household, you can bet that they're asking me, dad, what are the incentives? You know, <laughs> <laughs> what are the rewards? Wait, you know, what, what are we going to get if we solve this problem for you? Wow. You know, I was kidding, but whoa. All right. I know a lot about you now, Jason. Can you just talk a little bit about Common Pool? What is a competition and why are they good? So I, I found a Common Pool 10 years ago, and it's really kind of stems out of a very strong interest I had in grad school and early on in my life trying to figure out how incentive systems work, right? And if you study this academically, you know, there's been a kind of a convergence between behavioral sciences, economic theories, and electoral theories, assessment methodologies. All these things are coming together so we can really start experimenting with how we drive behavior and how we induce new solutions by using incentives. And so Common Pool is really kind of the embodiment of that. And when I founded the company 10 years ago, I had been working at the XPRIZE Foundation. And at the XPRIZE Foundation, we were offering these big, bold kind of bounties or cash rewards for things that had never been done before, like putting a rocket into outer space or trying to land on the moon. And that was a great kind of, that was a great education for me. When I founded Common Pool, it was really about 
trying to take those big audacious kind of high risk, high reward type of frameworks and to make it kind of streamlined and to make more of a service business out of it so that we could put the client's brand and the client's cause in front of our own and we could start solving big problems using some of the same approaches. So you're working with mainly nonprofit organizations and foundations, correct, to set up these competitions to solve these great, big, audacious problems. Do I have that right? Well, we also work with government. Like NASA relies on us a lot now. We're doing stuff for the Mars landing mission, the International Space Station. And increasingly, Eric, we're getting calls from high net worth families and individual family offices, people that are getting into philanthropy or causes and really are looking at the toolkit and they're saying, well, I can offer a grant or an investment. And I kind of want to play around with this new model, which are these challenge competitions. I should let our listeners know that this is the first of two interviews we're doing on this podcast. First, we're going to be speaking with you. And then we're going to be speaking with Kristen Mack of the MacArthur Foundation, because you're working with them on their 100 and Change competition for this year. Is that right? Well, we started working with the MacArthur Foundation when they offered their first $100 million cash award. And the first 100 and Change program closed out in January of 2017. And so now on April 30th, we're launching the second $100 million competition for them. Okay. And I'll let people know that this will air after that, but it'll... I assume this this podcast is going to air sometime in May or June while the competition is still very much open. So people Absolutely. who learn about it here we can, can certainly have plenty of time to apply or, I don't know what, compete in, in the competition. Can you talk about the kinds of projects that lend themselves best to competitions like this? So when we say competition, it covers a lot of ground. So anything that has kind of a competitive selection process and it could be called a competition, Right. So if you think about that, you've got these big kind of bounty-like prizes where you're offering a cash award, all of the costs shift to the competing teams, and those bounties are only paid upon proof of performance. That's one model, right? Another model is one where you are offering an award, but it's in the form of a grant. And a grant could be administered like any foundation's grant. And the selection process for who gets that grant is based upon the best applications. And so those applications aren't demonstrations of performance, they're really proposals that you have to sort through. And if you think of those two as being kind of extremes on a spectrum where you're really looking at uh, the trend moving more towards these competitions where we're giving away grant money in a more open, fair, and transparent process, that's where most of the activity is today. Now, I'll just real quick, just to wrap up the kind of landscape for you, There's other kinds of prizes like fellowship programs that don't focus on technology as much as they focus on talent. Those are competitions too. We run a lot of those. And some of those also fall into these kind of ex post, ex ante type of models. But yeah, whether wherever we're focusing, we can apply this tool in a lot of different ways. And now, if you think about the fact that the winners are getting a grant, the same question would apply, like what are the limitations of giving a grant away? And there are very actually few restrictions on that. So we're able to cover a lot of grounds, work in a lot of domains, a lot of disciplines, whereby we're supporting foundations, giving away grants in a more open, fair, and transparent way. So this is the second time you're doing this with the MacArthur Foundation. Can you talk about the first time you did it and what you learned? Sure. We learned a lot. The hardest thing about the first 100 and change program was not so much the size of the prize. We were giving away a single $100 million grant. And that and that was the largest bona fide competition that had ever been launched. That ain't nothing, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, while that grabbed a lot of headlines, it's important to know that we approached the program not focusing on the size of that, but really trying to deliver a value-added experience for anyone that would apply so that they could get value out of the whole experience. It was fun to lose. Yeah, well, sometimes it's it's, sometimes it's okay to lose if you're getting feedback. If it's very clear why you didn't win, if it's very clear where you where you fell into that rank order, and so we created a website where you could go and you could understand all of those costs. You could see the application before you registered. You could see our detailed rubric for how you'd be assessed. You saw who the judges were, and we even ensured that you had an understanding of how it was a level playing field. So we statistically normalized that assessment, and we explained that on the website. One of the advantages to that is that every ballot application gets reviewed by five judges, and these are highly qualified judges. So they're getting scores and comments from five individuals, and when we survey people that participate in these competitions, that feedback has a lot of value. There's that. The second thing, Eric, is that when they register, they get to join a community so they can jump into discussion forums on the back end of our platform. 
They can meet like-minded problem solvers. Now, that's all there, and that's the infrastructure we create for all of our competitions. But what we learned about 100 and Change is that you could actually run a competition that wasn't narrow and deep in its focus. We could run competitions that allowed you to present solutions that were in very disparate fields. Somebody's trying to deal with solar panels over here, and someone's trying to deal with prosthetic limbs over there. So to build the assessment process that allowed us to make that comparison was difficult. And we learned a lot, and we're, we're learning even more every day on how to do these broad-reaching type of competitions. So for the project that you're about to launch or uh, in the process of launching with, with MacArthur right now, what, what's going to be different this time? Well, we've learned a lot as we've looked at kind of the limits of how you can normalize assessment, right? And so when you normalize assessment, mathematically, the only way to make sure that everyone's getting treated fairly is if five judges are looking at every valid application. Now, that means that I'm not discounted if I get hard scores and you're not given advantage if you get easy scores. We're mathematically rescaling that. But the number five is really important because that means that if, say, I get 200 applications, now I need 1,000 reviews, which means I might need 100 judges each looking at 10 applications to manage that throughput. We created a solution for that, which we've tested with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, the Rockefeller Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, whereby in the first round, we're actually requiring the applicants to judge each other. And this kind of peer-to-peer assessment is really a breakthrough because operationally, it's very efficient which means that everybody who submits an application is using the same tools that expert judges are going to use later to assess the top performing applicants. But then they get to also meet each other and they get to kind of learn from one another. And we've done this in the past. Our initial theory was there could be some gaming of the system, right? People might try and score others low so they could score high. But once they understand that how this distribution works and how normalization works, A, we don't see a lot of that. And B, the benefits vastly outweigh any possibility that someone could be trying to game that system. What happens is people start to meet each other, they start to form teams, they start to collaborate with one another, and the social media starts to blow up and we start to reveal a lot of these great findings that these teams are discovering. The other thing we did is we published a search engine at the end of the first 100 and change competition. So the MacArthur Foundation Board gave away a $100 million prize, one of those. We've seen another $250 million invested in all of those teams from third-party interests after that competition closed. This is really interesting. And we're going to be back after this break to talk to Kristen Mack at the MacArthur Foundation about how she's how she has taken what you have helped to build and how she looks at it from the foundation side. And Kristen is a communications person at MacArthur. So we're going to have a great conversation, not only about the mechanism of the competition, but how you use it as a communications tool. Do you have what, you know, kind of one last thing to add to that before I, we, we go to the break and speak to Kristen? Yeah, I would just say when you're running a competition, communication be, can be hard if you don't already have the answers to the toughest questions. And so our job is to make sure that that website, you can go there and you understand everything about the competition so that by the time the hard ones hit Kristen's desk, she has a place to direct people. And so going to 100change.org is the place where you can learn about that program. Going to commonpool.org is where you can learn about us. But we run our company like we run our competitions, open, transparent, fair, give everybody the information they need and let them make the hard decisions. Thank you so much, Jason Morgan, Managing Principal and CEO of The Common Pool. We'll be back after this break with Kristen Mack of the MacArthur Foundation. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is made possible through the generous support of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. Welcome back to Let's Hear It. My guest in the second part of the show is Kristen Mack, Senior Communications Officer at the MacArthur Foundation, which has just launched its second 100 and Change funding competition. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us on Let's Hear It. I'm really excited about talking about this really interesting way of doing grants and, of course, about how you use communications to advance the work. But first, I'd just like, like to know a little bit more about how you came to this place. How did you get to the MacArthur Foundation? First, I am excited to be here as well. You know, I am a journalist by training. I started my career 
doing a fellowship where I spent four months, I'm sorry, six months, uh, over two years traveling around the country at newspapers of all different sizes. Ended up at the Houston Chronicle, where I spent a good portion of my career, then went to the Washington Post and the Chicago Tribune, worked for a local politician, and then came to the MacArthur Foundation. I've worked with a lot of former journalists. Maybe it's just because they can't get a job in journalism anymore. But there's something about journalists, who, who many of whom seem to do really well at foundations, they take to that work. I think many of us who get into the business get into the business because you want to do good work. And philanthropy is all about doing good work. So if you are mission-driven and purpose-driven in your journalism career, then I think you can easily find a home in the world of philanthropic communications. The things that attracted me to MacArthur were that it aligned with my personal mission and values, and that it still allowed me to tell the type of stories that I want to tell. So I highly recommend philanthropy, nonprofits for people, for, for recovering journalists who are <laughs> looking to start the second phase of their career. What, what are those meetings like? I am Kristen. I am a former journalist. <laughs> they still involve lots of drinking. That much. Is, <laughs> that much is also a common thread. <laughs> uh, I, I did work with a former journalist from the San Jose Mercury News, Jack Fisher. Rest his soul. He was a great guy. Had a bottle of whiskey in his desk. Indeed. And, uh, <laughs> that sounds about right. When, when everyone went home after hours, every so often the top of the whiskey was removed. And its contents were drained. Gotta love it. It was great. He was he was one of those hard-boiled guys like you see in the old movies. Fast-talking, funny, but also a great storyteller. Can you tell me a little bit about the, you say the stories that you like to tell? I think get into 100 and Change for sure, because this is a very cool story. What are some of the f most fun stories you've had the opportunity to tell lately? Wow. Uh, so the way that communications works at MacArthur is that our communications offices are embedded into program areas. So we get to live and breathe the work. So my two program areas are 100 and Change and then also the Chicago Commitment. And that is our grant making for our hometown of Chicago. And again, what appeals to me about those two program areas are that I am invested very much in addressing the challenges that our city faces in our hometown because I was a reporter that covered City Hall. And then with 100 and Change, we are addressing global challenges and issues and encouraging people to think big and be inspired to come up with solutions. With 100 and Change, one of the most compelling things that I had the opportunity to do was to go to Jordan last summer and see the work on the ground in person it is a rare opportunity for a grantee to allow a funder into the room to hear them problem solve, to hear them engage with other experts on the work, to hear them think through what their, um, how they will end up addressing the challenges that they're facing. And so Sesame was really gracious and open enough to allow us to participate in that process as they thought about what language they would use on their upcoming show and to hear from local experts and country and to think about who they would engage to as partners to film the show and to hear locally from people who they would use as producing partners. And so when we first started that meeting on their first day, they had everyone go around the room and say one word about how they felt at the beginning of the week. And the words that people used were inspired, enthusiastic, you know, ready for, you know, a new challenge. And then by the end of the week, I think that it hit people, all of the things that they had to face 
because in Syria, you couldn't use the word education and you couldn't use, you couldn't bring printed materials into the country with you. So at the end of the week, everyone went around the room and gave a word and the language that they used was daunting. You know, it, it, it was just a very different feeling. And I think that it allowed us to come back to MacArthur and be advocates for them in the room when we are talking to our colleagues on their behalf. And I think that that is a rare opportunity that you get as a funder to share that space and to really see what it is that that they have to address in person and, and, and interacting with the people who will end up being the beneficiaries of the work in country. So I, I think that that for me made it a lot more real than thinking about, you know, what it, what it would be like to address the Syrian refugee crisis and, and the humanitarian from a, from a humanitarian perspective and addressing early education than, you know, sitting back here in, in the States in a room thinking about Muppets and, and furry characters from that perspective. And to clarify, the winner of the competition in the, the first round of 100 and Change was a $100 million grant to Sesame Workshop and the International Rescue Committee to educate young children displaced by conflict and persecution in the Middle East. That's such an amazing way to think about using grant money. I don't imagine that there are many program officers would have kind of dreamed that up. Is that what a competition is designed to bring out? Absolutely. I think when we started this, we had no idea that we would get nearly 2,000 proposals to be submitted to the competition. There were bets, and, you know, we, we had a, a trophy and an award <laughs> internally, but we had no idea what to expect the first time around. So that we encouraged organizations to really set aside what you normally do. You should not be limited by the parameters of a normal grant application and come to us with your unfettered ideas and think really big and bold about how you would address a huge problem and come up with a solution and tell us what you would do. Because what we know is that the organizations that are doing the work day in, day out, know the best ways to address the issues that they are facing day to day. Then you decided, of course, to do this again. Yeah, we did. <laughs> for, for starters, I don't know if you had the chance to listen to our, my conversation with Jason to set up my conversation with you, but he mentioned that you need to be really clear in your communications about the prize, about the competition and how it, how it works. Yeah. What did you learn that time in your communications and how did you apply it this time? There's some pretty basic things that we learned in our communications, like telling people this really is a grant for $100 million. <laughs> Hello. Uh, don't apply for $95 million and think that that increases your chances of getting it. You should apply for a $100 million grant. I, you know, we just needed to be very clear about some basic rules from that perspective. We also want to be, we wanted to be clear with organizations about what would make them competitive for this competition. It's not for everybody. We are looking for organizations that have evidence to support their solutions. We want organizations that have proven that they have been impactful. They should have a durable solution as well, and it should be feasible. So this is not for the blue sky innovation. These are for organizations and collaborations that have some proven evidence that the solution that they have put forward has worked somewhere, and that now what they are looking to do is to scale it at a at $100 million level. It could be overwhelming to run something so visible like this. How did you think about how to design the communication strategy around this? 
So we we think about it in different phases, similar to the competition cycle and the life cycle of the competition. We think of the communications in different phases as well. So right now we are in the registration period where we are primarily focused on engagement and outreach. What can we do during this period to help identify high quality applications? We are making sure that we are sending out personalized letters from our our president of the foundation to university and foundation presidents, conducting email outreach. Again, as I said, you know, making sure that we are getting those targeted high quality submissions, trying new things that we don't normally do, like Facebook and and LinkedIn ads to target those uh, organizations who we are looking to, to submit applications. Those are the sort of things that we are doing during this phase of the competition. And then once we move to the next phase, when we have our top 100 selected and the finalists selected, then really it is about making sure that we are promoting those organizations and showing some value add for them. What we learned during the last time was we we had the top 200 and we put those out on the website and we created a searchable tool for people to engage with that and interact, but we didn't give them enough promotion during that phase and period. So this time we want to make sure that we have a very intentional focused effort where we are promoting them and making sure that we are engaging donors earlier in the competition so that they can um, we can connect them to donors and so that they can get some potential funding. The other thing that happens during this phase of the competition is that the finalists will be working on strengthening their applications. So they'll be doing a lot of work with our technical experts and making sure that they are getting their applications ready for the final review from our board. And so we have to think, I I always say to our team, like, please remember communications that we can't go dark or silent (laughs) during that period. So what can we do to keep the momentum going? What can we do to continue telling stories? And so we do a series of blog posts during that period to to make sure that we, we continue to engage the public and we'll do a Facebook Live, et cetera. We realized last time that we we definitely scheduled too many of those <laughs> because we you, you want to make sure that you have enough varied stories to tell. And we also want to make sure that it's not just content we're putting out on our website, but content that is usable for the organizations that they that will live on beyond the competition. Well, this is interesting because it's a grant-making program, but the communications around it feel very integrated. That, for me, has always been Shangri-La, where grant-making and communications just kind of is intertwined. How has the foundation kind of used that in other parts of its grant-making? How has it used this understanding of communications to improve its grant-making process. It's a very good point you pick up on. So what I what I spoke of, of earlier about our communications officers being embedded in our program areas, I think it makes all the difference in the world. We are there at the table from program inception to implementation. So when the program teams are thinking about quarter by quarter, which grants they are going to award and thinking through the nomination process, we have a seat at the table. And many of us have either a vested interest or expertise in the programs that we're serving. So we know the organizations that are that are being considered or that are or that are up for review. And so we um, we're very vested and interested in the work, obviously. And so we play a very active role. So it's not an org- a communications team or an organization where the program officers go away and do their work, and then they come to us and say, like, here, <laughs> get us the press attention for this. Our program 
officers are equally interested and understand communications. They know the difference between, you know, whether something works for a press release or if they should do a video or a perspectives piece, which is our uh, internal blog. They also have a very sophisticated understanding of what communications tools to use when to tell different types of stories. And so I think, you know, have, having the communications officers embedded in teams has really elevated our ability to use different communications tools and to democratize our voice throughout the foundation and also to elevate the work of our grantees. Well, I have to say, in Integrating communications into programs, hearing that warms the cockles of my heart because it's something that I know is if we're going to be effective, we have to do this. I have one more, one more question for you, which is uh, you're a judge for the 2019 Clarence Jones Impact Award, which honors the individual team or organization whose work best represents the extraordinary impact of our craft. That, that seems like another, <laughs> like that's a big prize and a tall order. To pick one winner, how's that going? I'm I'm fascinated to know. I was on the board of the Communications Network for a really long time. It's thrilling to be able to present real effectiveness as a model for the rest of our field. How what is it like to be a judge, and how do you how do you do this? Are you looking for me to tease? I I do not want you to tell me anything that you have not that you are not honor bound to protect. No, just I. I <laughs> You get my point. I know. I totally do. And so what is what is interesting being on that side of the table and judging is that I have been able to use all of these skills being a communications officer and, you know, working on working on 100 and change and understanding some of the things that our judges take into consideration with our competitions and even and even our Chicago work as well. So thinking about things like, you know, their organizations and know how to put together a really good application and they have expertise at that. And the sort of things that we think about at MacArthur are the the sort of lived experience of how do you think about scale and size? Um, It's something that we think about with 100 and change. Does it make a difference if someone is, if an organization is making a big impact on a, a significant impact on a smaller number of people? Or do we as foundations tend to reward those organizations that go big and splashy? Those are some of the sort of things that I think you have to stop and think about and challenge yourself and, and your own bias. And really give your give yourself and push yourself and your your judging peers to take those things into consideration when honoring, especially your peers, um, as we are with the Clarence B. Jones Award. Well, it's a really cool honor. Congratulations on that. We are all, of course, eager to hear what you what you come up with, and very excited about it. And in just in our last couple of minutes. Can you give a little bit more information about this year's 100 and Change competition? When does the registration close and how how is all that going to work? Here's how it will roll out. People can submit their applications through August of this year. And then um, once they submit their applications, we will then have an administrative and peer-to-peer review. And that will be through August and September. And then the judges will have an opportunity to review all of the applications. And then early next year in February, we will announce the top 100. And then you can look for the finalists to be selected in spring of 2020. Well, it's uh, you're just you're clearly do going about your due diligence. You're not just going to write some hundred million dollar check to anybody. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> this is really an exciting program. I, I'm thrilled to to hear about how you're doing the communications on this and what you're learning. We'd love to have you back when you've announced your winner. Winner, we can talk about it. Yeah, I would love to. That would be great. Well, thank you again, Kristen Mack of the MacArthur Foundation. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, so I think we spend the rest of our podcast trying to create our $100 million idea. Let's get it in. Let's propose. 
<laughs> Let's win. But before we talk about 100 and change. We're not going to win. <laughs> Come on. We're not going to win. We're just, we're a hotbed of transformative ideas. We're not. We're doing a podcast. We're just a couple of guys in a sandwich. So, um, you know, Kristen obviously is the senior communications officer at, at MacArthur. Jason is the CEO and founding principal at Common Pool, which you can find at commonpool.org. And can we start there? Because Jason's conversation about comp, what he's calling competitions. Right. I almost want to say, actually, Jason's in the business of running transparent and open grant-making processes. Yes. And that, I think, is a radical idea. It is interesting, isn't it? So did you, tell me about this part because I feel like you've worked with Jason in different mm-hmm. permutations too. Yeah. So what do you make of that piece of his model? Because that, that was very interesting to hear him reflect on when he was talking about it. It is interesting. Actually, I, I'd be almost as excited to hear about people who are in the kind of the tran- – the, philanthropy transparency business mm-hmm. talk about it the glass pockets folks and and their ilk because if <laughs> i mean if, we, if what you're saying is we want to know how foundations are allocating their money being able to see these proposals for the people who are participating in these competitions to be able to coordinate with each other or collaborate or learn from each other or read each other's proposals. I mean, that is transparent. So I, when, when Grant was on, I said that, you know, I draw the line at uh, glass trousers. So like <laughs> too much, too much transparency might be dangerous, but, but I, I mean, I really think that there is so much that you can learn from this kind of process. I don't think you can do it with every kind of grant that you do. It mm-hmm. would just, it would be nuts. But for something this big for, to be able to be that transparent is really interesting to me. What struck me about it, you know, he says anything that has a competitive selection process could be called a competition. Right. So he um, uses that notion across a whole bunch of different models. And that was actually really interesting to hear him just riff on some of the different ways they're doing that. The thing that struck me about it, though, is this whole question of strategy and where does strategy reside? Where does the notion of what's strategic reside? And and I think that what he's doing, part of the, what's radical about this is they're basically when he's working with entities, they're basically saying, we want the goal to be clear, what we're striving towards to be clear, but let's open the door to strategy. Let's open the door to what you think would be innovative to get us there. And right. then let's have some clear metrics for how we're going to rank order and evaluate what lands is relatively strategic. So that's what feels radical about it. It's basically opening the door in my mind to strategy. And what do you think about that? Because it's it's almost like to me, it's not just transparency, it's partnership. It's saying we are going to be in partnership with whoever we're funding around the purpose of this work. As long as we're aligned on goals, we want to we wanna open the door and listen to what you have to say about what is strategic and what, what advances us towards those goals. Do you buy that? Well, I do. It's needless to say, strategy is subjective. <laughs> so what you think might work is different from what somebody else thinks might work. Right. The, the, but I do know my ideas are worth $100 million. Let's be clear. <laughs> I'm absolutely certain. I'm sure you are. <laughs> my certain. ideas are worth $100 million. But the idea, the, but the, so what, what they're trying to, uh, what they're trying to do is by bringing these other re- reviewers in, I think they're trying to normalize some of the strategy, Yeah, which is to say, you you need to test this strategy against multiple reviewers. Yep. There is another reason that you have multiple reviewers is because with all of these inputs, there's just no way you could read all these uh, uh, all these submissions. Yeah. Uh, but I I do think that that is a way to analyze these strategies and try and come up with some way to kind of smooth over the subjectivity involved. Because if I really think that a specific activity is the best possible way to achieve social change, but I'm a nut and I'm an outlier, <laughs> yeah. then strategy schmategy, it doesn't mean anything at all. Right, right. And his magic number five, you know, yes. that's the number of reviewers you need, right? It's because that's how many fingers you have on one hand. <laughs> that's great. Five. <laughs> and then they're comparing what I would say apples to oranges, but they're saying, no, we found a way to normalize. So we can actually run a competition and encourage submissions even across different domains. That idea, I can't even, my head is far too tiny to process what yeah, that looks me like. Too. I, I'm just going to have to trust him on that one. But I love it, right? Because <laughs> I mean, this is this one of the issues we run into, I feel like when, even whenever we see foundations get organized is the inherent siloing that shows up. Right. You know, it's like program A, program B, and we've been touching on some of the interconnected issues. So before we jumped to 100 and change, the last thing that Jason brought up um, 
that uh, I thought was really meaningful was not just the impact of these major competitions on who wins, but when Jason said, and we had $250 million follow to fund the, in air quotes, non-winning concepts. Right. That's pretty cool, huh? Oh, man. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting in philanthropy. One of the one of the arguments for transparency about who you fund for a foundation is that if I put on my website the organizations that I fund, then other people will fund them as well. But I haven't actually experienced that to yeah. be true. And in this instance, if if Jason is to be believed, and I, I have no reason to disbelieve him, that that principle is actually working, which is which is amazing because it just doesn't usually go like that. Right, right. Well, so now let's jump to Kristen and yeah. 100 and Change. Because – so Kristen's got these two areas of domain. So 100 and Change is hashtag 100 and change on Twitter. And then she's also got Chicago commitment. Um, there's so much ground to cover in terms of what she's talking about. And so let's start with you and how you characterize Kristen in this field because – you know, she's a journalist by training. She's come right. to the Houston Chronicle, the Washington Post, the Chicago yeah. Tribune. You could stop the conversation there and just spend the afternoon hearing her talk yeah. about those experiences. And she worked in politics too. And then worked in politics. Um, so – and then she's balancing these two areas, which is the Chicago commitment work she does as well as 100 and change. So as somebody who's been in philanthropy, what do you make of what MacArthur is doing here? Because this is – I mean, I almost can't even process what $100 million of support might look like. Though when she talks about the first round, the winning proposition was International Rescue Committee, IRC, right. doing work with um, Palestinian children affected, or not, but Middle Eastern children affected by the uprising right. and the upset. It's just, of course, and, what a wonderful idea. And working with Sesame. Yeah. So there were basically <laughs> the, the Muppets in the Middle East working with kids uh, and refugees. That, that seems kind of you know, creative, if you ask me. Yeah. I, I get a creative sense out of that. It's not the sort of thing that foundations have a tendency to fund. Yeah. But yeah. It, it's true that I've always felt that the MacArthur Foundation kind of punched uh, punches above its weight. Mm. It is a large foundation, but it is by no means the largest. Yet the fellow program also misnomered the genius program. I think the MacArthur people like, don't call it the genius program. <laughs> That's not what it is. The fellows. But the fellow pro so I will call it the fellow program so as to not go across uh, sideways with with Andy Solomon. Yeah. Uh, and its its uh, approach to communications has been really powerful. Yeah. And a hundred million dollar grant is nothing to sneeze at either. But in the context of other large foundations putting out large grants, it's you know, it's big, but it's not the biggest. And yet it has generated all this light and heat using, frankly, communications. Yeah. And obviously they made the grant and they need people to know about the grant, but they're using communications in a way that amplifies that work. And, and as Jason pointed out, I think it amplified it to the tune of 2.5. Well, you know what's incredible about it too? We've been asking this incredibly unfair question on the podcast. If you were the head of all foundations and you could fund anything, yeah. what would you do? <laughs> Isn't this a systematic way to ask that question? Yeah. Because it's basically, this is, you know, I guess you could try to figure out how to program a billion dollars, yeah. but once That's you get past point. some number, it's almost like whatever, you know, so it's a huge amount of money. Resources are not going to be the limiting factor. So let's get everybody who's willing to engage with us, put your best ideas forward and let's not limit the domain. Right. Talk about genius. I mean, I actually think it's a really genius proposition because I think there's a bunch of indications of how about how this work gets amplified. They come forward. I mean, so what do you make of that piece? Because again, this notion of what is strategy and where does strategy yeah. live, this feels like to me, MacArthur is saying, you know what? Strategy lives with you. Right. You come to us with the strategy. We'll figure out a process to evaluate it, but show us what you're – give us your best shot. Well, first I want to go back to the, the point where MacArthur puts up $100 million and they get $250 million, They get other people to fund $250 million worth of good works among the people who were finalists in their – in the competition. And that – you know what that reminds me of? Tom Sawyer. <laughs> who gets other people to do their work for them. Okay. I'm going to break in here. If this makes it into the final cut, you are really mean to me in this interview. And it it's may not in. make it in. It's it may not make in. it in. Go ahead. It's going Go in ahead. because I do the editing. <laughs> That's why it's oh, going shoot. in. Oh, shoot. You I do. Because I do all the work. That's actually true. Okay. Go ahead. 
All right. <laughs> it's just too much fun, Kirk. You're just such a nice guy. Yeah, it's your easy, easy target. It's shooting fish in a barrel. Totally low hanging fruit. Yeah, actually shooting Midwestern lake pike. <laughs> Right. In a barrel. They don't know how to hide out in the water. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I will answer your question, which is, which I'm interpreting to mean, isn't this a more effective and more, I don't know, intelligent way to crowdsource grant making? Yes. And the answer is, it seems like it. Obviously, we'll see whether the first $100 million grant went well, and we'll also see some of these other sub you know the the second place and the third place winners how they do but it seems like a really interesting way to do crowdsourcing in which they're trying to ungame the gaming function yeah you know yeah. so you can't stuff the ballot box i think it's really interesting it's like clever people are smart oh so smart and 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 on this count one of the things so you know when you search 100 and change the hashtag on twitter there's a very robust conversation ongoing right now because the time is now right. for people to yeah, be submitting yeah. their stuff and They've created um, uh, an assessment tool for organizations to use to evaluate their readiness to do this. And they've had 1,200 organizations touch that tool. So just the amplification parts of this. So two more things I want to say before we have to go. So one is I thought that her reflection on the steps involved in communicating this, Kristen had that ability. And I love this about professional communicators to both think at the very high level, but also really break it down into its component parts. So what what do you make of what she's done in talking about even how they've learned about how to communicate about this project? Because even though there's so much discussion going on, she's also said, yeah, but there's also periods where we can't go dark and they, right. maybe we did too many Facebook lives and yep. yeah, yeah, all that stuff. Well, it's true. And you're always trying to find the right balance of too much, too much information or too much communication and not enough. Yeah. You certainly – I also think that, that how they are – how they adapted from the first round to the second round mm-hmm. was quite interesting. And this notion of finding the best ways that you can to listen to the field. Yeah. It's something that we're always trying to do. Yeah. I've worked on a million projects where you ask yourself, how do we know that this stuff is working or that there are people out there? Or that, yeah. And how do we hear back from them? How do we get that kind of good feedback? And as you see with this hashtag, which you know, people are in the thick of it, yeah. you can hear these conversations. And I'm, I would imagine that they are following them with great interest because people are, you know, your audience always tells you how to, how to communicate with them. Yeah. And as long as you set up a way to get them to tell you that you, you really have this amazing advantage or not an advantage, but it just gives you a lot of power. Well, and to see all the different foundations and grant making entities that are also on that hashtag, it's super exciting. So Kristen gives us one of the great uh, phrases we haven't heard yet in this podcast talking about having communications officers embedded in program teams, yep. which is something I think that you were working on a lot in back yep. in the day and now has progressed in a lot of foundations. She talks about it, democ- democratize our voice throughout the foundation, yeah. democratize, democratize the communications voice throughout the foundation and its work. What do you think of this trend to put communication capacity within program teams at foundations? Is that uh-huh. Is that and, and you this were talking a long about conversation? I know, and I know get we're getting long, today. but um, and I know you were talking about you know grant making communications getting ingra- integrated, and that's like your Shangri La for how right. this works. So uh, I'm going to give you two seconds of that, okay. and then we're going to have to go. There's one more on thing that. I'm going to give you on that, but yeah, okay. let's uh, go. Um, here's here's the thing: it can work great, it can work terribly. Yeah, right. It depends on who. If your communications person um, feels like they need to prove their program chops to the program teams, y- you can lose them, uh-huh. and uh, which is. You know, you can lose them. And if uh, they if the program team doesn't accept them as a full member of their community, then they can get lost. It's like a graft. It's a graft. It's like, the, yes, the body didn't take the, yeah, right. the new hand. Yeah, but if if and this is where dotted line reporting things get yeah. a little funky, uh, it, it, it just depends on culture. It depends on talent. It depends on the happy heart with which all yeah. of the people engage in it. I do think that and I've said this in the past, I have had this conversation with lots of folks that if you can if you can um, create a communications mindset among everybody in your foundation mm-hmm. then everyone's in communications and we're right. all embedded in everything else yeah. Th- that's also hard to do but I think that's in my own mind that's the goal is you want everyone thinking in terms of communication strategy in it, addition to all the other stuff that they have to do. It's almost like it becomes so second nature that communications offer title goes away the communications officer yeah. title almost is so Finally, 
you must talk about the Clarence Jones Impact Award. Yes. Because Kristen is one of the um, evaluators or on the, one of the judges for that award this year. Yes. And, uh, and I was really glad to hear that. And as we speak, voting is open. Oh, wow. So we had a, a, a twofer. Yeah. Voting is open for the four finalists wow. for the Clarence Jones Impact Award of the Communications Network, which mm-hmm. is an award that acknowledges great communication strategy that produces great outcomes. The old days, you there were awards that will go unnamed that for the best, you know, annual report mm-hmm. and the nicest font. Or I don't know what. Some, <laughs> tag, some kind of tactic. You know, best press release. And and this is a, an award that goes to a strategy, a communication strategy that makes a difference. I love it. And the finalists this year are really interesting. And I just urge people to go to the Communications Net, uh, Network website and to vote. Yeah. Uh, and Kristen is one of the judges who produced the these four finalists, and I do believe that they are crowdsourcing the winners, although I couldn't say for sure. Uh, but they're certainly looking for feedback from our community about what they think of these four. And it's oh, it's and it's ranked choice voting wow. as well, which is yeah. kind of fun. I was like that. So I, yeah, when you when Kristen was reflecting on that, you're asking about that. I was like, yep, you want something done, give it to a busy person. That's right? right. So here's Kristen, everything she's doing, <laughs> and also be a judge for the Clarence Jones Impact Award. Um, so please, and kudos to the Communications Network for sustaining this award and maintaining it and for the people that support yeah. that process, both with time and support. So 100 and Change, you can find the website at 100andchange.org, and that's 100andchange.org. And I think I've got these dates right, but she said that registration is must be in by July 16th, right. 2019. So this will go. This podcast will go live yes. at some point before and, July 16th. And that's just to register. Just to register. To be able to make an application. And the application period happens after that. And that application period runs through August. Right. So you've got some more time. And then the administrative and peer-to-peer review process happens August, September. And the first 100, top 100, get a, a, announced in February 2020 with the finalist announced in the spring. Yeah, so don't spend the money yet. Kirk. Yeah, don't I I will I will not spend don't the spend money yet. Don't spend 100 million. But I'm going to be on that list, man, <laughs> cuz I've got 100 million dollars worth of really good ideas. So I'm registering. And so you should have, you. No, 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 you have 100 million ideas each worth a dollar. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And I'm hoping somebody else picks up. So 100 and change that arc. Man, Kristen and Jason, thank you so much for your work and everybody at MacArthur that's been supporting this and to the at least 1,200 organizations that are thinking seriously about this. Yeah. This is exactly what we need. It's really exciting to hear about. Great conversation, Eric. Thanks for letting us listen in. All right. Well, we'll see everyone uh, you know, in two weeks. See you in two weeks. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people you should have on the show, and that includes yourself. And we'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. Sarah Morgan, our tireless social and digital media maven. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. Ben Rockwood, our brilliant partner behind the production curtain. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation for their incredibly generous support. Thank you, thank you. And we certainly thank our guests. And of course, all of you. And thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) No, no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) Till next time. Let's hear it.